Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. With the COVID-19 pandemic sweeping the world, it feels like life has been turned upside down. Countless workplaces, schools, public spaces have been shuttered in a race to contain the virus, causing enormous challenges for the world economy. Our health systems and care workers continue to face intense pressure. After these first long months, what lessons can be drawn? I'm Kate Lancaster, and you're listening to OECD Podcasts. Today, I'm joined, virtually of course, by Francesca Colombo, head of the Health Policy Division at the OECD, to explore these questions and more. Francesca, welcome. It's, it's wonderful to speak to you. Thank you. Let's start right in. After several long months battling the coronavirus, and now with some countries announcing a loosening of restriction measures, I'd like to ask, and I'm sure this is a question we all want to know, where are we in this pandemic? Is this the end of the beginning, the beginning of the end? What do you think? It's a question that everybody is clearly asking. There is uh, a lot that we don't know, but a lot that we start to know about this virus. For example, we know that it's uh, very infectious, about twice as infectious as seasonal flu. We know that it's uh, many times more deadly than the seasonal flu, although it's not as deadly as the SARS or as uh, uh, the uh, Ebola, for example. And we know that there are many cases which are asymptomatic. So there were a sufficient number of people that became ill, critically ill, required um, intensive care, hospital care, and very quickly overwhelmed hospital services and healthcare services. And that's where countries implemented lockdown measures or containment measures. Uh, those measures were effective to reduce the rate of contagion and bring us in a situation in which they can be gradually eased and lifted in a number of countries. And you can understand that there is a very strong social and economic imperative, of course, to ease those restrictions. And so is it the beginning of the end? Is this the end of the beginning? I think it's the beginning of a new phase in which we will need to learn how to live with this virus. This virus will not disappear. It will continue circulating. We will be able, hopefully, to reduce the spread so that we don't overwhelm hospital and healthcare systems. But until we have a vaccine, until we have a prophylaxis, we will need to live with this, uh, with this virus. And so we will need to learn about living with some form of containment measures, uh, perhaps more social distances than we were used to, perhaps more personal hygiene and protective measures that we were used to. Well, you mentioned our health systems, and it's true that this crisis has really put health systems to the test. Not all countries have been hit to the same extent, but a lot of health systems are under pressure. And what policy lessons are emerging? What can we learn from these first tough months and use as the fight against COVID-19 goes on? It's uh, quite clear that many countries were taken by surprise, but some countries were hit earlier than others, which means that others had the opportunity to learn from what was, what was happening. If you take uh, Korea, which seems to have had a quite good and rapid response, they were quite traumatized, I would say, from the previous SARS uh, epidemics uh, at the uh, early 2000s. And so they were much more prepared for these kinds of uh, uh, epidemics. Uh, there are other factors, things about the population structure. Italy has a very old population. 
and we know that elderly people are more vulnerable and fragile uh, to this virus. There are then issues related to the characteristics of health system, and I'm not hiding that there are differences across countries in terms of uh, capacity, critical care capacity, intensive care uh, units, beds, but also the workforce, because you, you don't just need to have hospital and beds, you need to have uh, the workforce behind operating those critical uh, care needs. There have been differences in the ability of countries to very quickly test for uh, infections. If we take also the case of uh, nursing homes for elderly people that were really quite affected, there are differences, uh, again, across countries in terms of caring personnel and in terms of infection control protocols. One thing perhaps to be on a positive side, because I think we need to be positive, there have been a lot, a lot of very innovative and very interesting reactions in countries. Think about telemedicine, for example, or the use of more digital solutions to facilitate care uh, in a more remote fashion. Those are all innovations that have been accelerated by the current crisis and that probably will remain even when we are out of this crisis. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, the ways you think health systems can continue to innovate and adapt as we enter this new normal that you've described, this period of living with the virus? Well, I think it will have to do with ability to be better prepared. Uh, definitely, while we all knew that there could be epidemics of these sorts at some point. The current crisis have revealed that there have been some um, problems and weaknesses in countries in terms of being prepared for an epidemic. I think we need uh, beyond the capacity also to think about the agility of health systems to respond and to react very quickly because that's what was needed in this current crisis. Uh, the ability to mobilize workforce, for example, really to, uh, in a way, create almost a, a a reserve army and reserve capacity that can be quickly mobilized in a situation of crisis. In my neighborhood, every evening, people come out at 8 p.m. to clap for essential frontline workers, for healthcare workers. But we all know that applause is not enough. So what would you say are the main structural challenges when it comes to staff levels, working conditions, carers, training, and skills? Well, first of all, I, I need to say that obviously we need to pay a very, very high tribute to the care workers because they're working insane hours. Uh, they're risking their lives, their health, their physical and their mental health to really protect our lives. And uh, it's important to say uh, the health workforce is very feminized. 50% of, uh, uh, of the doctors are women. But among the uh, nurses, for example, in uh, a number of countries, up to 90% are women. And for long-term care workers, the personal carers and the nurses, again, 90% of them being, uh, being women. Um, and so I think the crisis has, however, shown that there were a number of structural problems in uh, um, the uh, caring personnel in the hospital sectors, in the long-term care sectors that will need to be addressed. And they were very, very severely hit. If we take the long-term care sectors, about 50% of the deaths happening there, and they were not prioritized for receiving personal care equipment or even for testing. For long-term care, you mean nursing homes, rehabilitation centers, places like that? Nursing homes uh, or even personal care workers and nurses that really assist uh, disabled elderly people. They were not the first immediate priority 
for receiving uh, personal uh, protective equipment or also for testing. And even if you take in, uh, in the hospitals for personal protective equipment, there have been issues. But I think there are issues which pre-existed the current crisis. And so I think we need to be a little bit more uh, attentive to the working conditions. We need to look again at the work environments of uh, hospitals, of nursing homes. We need to ensure a much stronger also coordination with the primary care uh, professionals and supports in order to improve that safety and the working conditions. Well, it's going to be a long haul and any lessons we can learn as we go along are, are vital. Uh, in, in that context, looking forward down the road, we all know that there's a race on to find effective treatments and to find a vaccine. Where are we on this? What policies will be needed to make sure that the treatments and vaccine are available for all in every country? We see a lot of movements in terms of trying to generate new funding for the research for new treatment and new vaccines, and that's fantastic. So quite a lot of money for funding, but a few things to remember. First, it takes a long time to develop a vaccine. In normal circumstances, we're talking about up to six or seven years to really um, having a vaccine which is tested in clinical trial, and then obviously, uh, you know, to be approved uh, and distributed. Here, we're talking about tremendous efforts also in terms of uh, running things in parallel, many different trials, many different um, uh, clinical trials uh, in, in parallel to try to accelerate that to have a vaccine in something like 18 months. And that is gonna be a major achievement. It's only the beginning in a way. This means that while we rush to provide more funding for the research, we need also to think at other issues. We need to have uh, uh, a better understanding and projections of what will be the global demands for vaccine. We need to start incentivizing also the completion of all the, uh, these uh, uh, research projects. We need also to think about the manufacturing capacity. Can we give some incentives for companies to start now with manufacturing capacity, even without knowing which one of the vaccine candidates will be successful in the end? And how about also trying to work on pricing and also on procurement measurement measures so that we make sure that we will be able to distribute the vaccines where they're mostly needed and avoiding bidding wars across countries, for example. So quite a lot of things that do require international cooperation that go beyond the very, very obviously important initial steps of funding research. In the meantime, what kind of approaches can countries take to minimize risks as they ease lockdown measures? It will take time to have a vaccines or a prophylaxis. Well, we need to do things which are non-medical interventions. And so there are not many, the weapons that we have at our disposal, but they're very, very critical. We need to do them uh, robustly and we need to do them well. I mean, I mentioned already the importance of hygiene, uh, protection, respiratory protection, such, such as masks or disinfection measures, all the countries are implementing those. But there is also an important role for measures to ensure that the virus does not transmit from one person to another. And that's where the role of testing, tracking and tracing particularly uh, important. So this has to do really with the ability to very quickly uh, detect when there are new cases 
but also then investigate, find out all of the contacts of those cases, uh, test them to ensure that they didn't get infected, and if they were, isolate all of those that were infected. We need to reduce really the time between an infections and other possible uh, infections. We've heard a lot in the press about technology being used to help for this, apps or devices that could make this faster, that people could share their information. Yes, it's uh, one possibility. I don't think it should be considered as a, a magic bullet. There are some challenges with it. For example, to be effective, you need to have some 60% of uh, uh, the, the, the cases to be on those applic. And so you need to have a very large scaling up of, uh, uh, of, uh, of these applications. There are also some false positive or negatives that can uh, happen. Uh, there are issues about battery life and there can be also privacy concerns about what is going to happen with the data that might be uh, collected uh, through those, uh, those tracking uh, tools. And so there are a number of things that needs to be addressed to make sure uh, that they can function, but fundamentally they need to be accompanied by the more also traditional uh, you know, job of uh, uh, public health professionals that really go and investigates uh, uh, you know, all the, uh, the contacts that individuals have had uh, in order to identify really all the infected cases. There are challenges in this. There are challenges also in uh, protective equipments and, and so forth. There are challenges in terms of scaling up the production, the distributions of the tests. There are a number of challenges. However, we should bear in mind that the costs of all these measures, those measures that we have at our disposal right now, are really very, very small relative to the cost of the next lockdown. So the economic and social cost of a lockdown, we're talking about really uh, immense consequences for the economy's individual life uh, and, and social uh, interactions as well. And so even if measures might have some challenges, we do need to try to implement them and scale up. And yes, they may cost a little bit, but those costs really pale relative to the cost of the further lockdown. Thank you very much, Francesca. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I, I wish you all the best and I hope we see each other again in person soon. If you want to find out more about the issues we've been discussing today, go to www.oecd.org slash coronavirus. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.